friend Aaron Zhao. Aaron, good morning. Morning, a morning church. Uh, glad to be with you this morning. Um, we're continuing our series on pursuing Christ together with global expression. And this morning, I'll be preaching on the gospel in the lens of honor and shame. And we'll also look through the passage, uh, Luke 15, the story, familiar story of the prodigal son to see uh, some of that in scripture. So there's three main reasons why this topic quickly came to my mind for this series. Uh, one, the majority of the world consists of honor shame cultures. Two, our current culture and incoming generations are increasingly dealing and struggling with shame. And most importantly, number three, honor and shame dynamics are central to the gospel and throughout scripture. And hopefully we'll see a bit of that this morning. So uh, as we start, it'd be helpful to maybe define or at least start to define those terms, honor and shame. What do they mean? So uh, the New Oxford Dictionary, uh, English Dictionary, defines shame as a painful feeling of humiliation or distress, a loss of respect, uh, dishonor. A kind of helpful distinction between guilt and shame uh, is I did something bad versus I am bad, the sense of being unworthy. So one example of this, we can see this shame in the movie Frozen uh, as Elsa stays locked in her room and eventually runs away to secluded icy mountaintop because of the painful humiliation of her icy powers. Uh, on the other hand, let's look at honor. So Seneca, an ancient philosopher, defines honor as the good opinion of good people. Uh, I think that's a helpful way of seeing it. It's not just um, actions that bring honor, but even character. Um, for example, a king like T'Challa from the movie Black Panther, which is an awesome movie, uh, is honorable. He's a good man who cares about life and a good leader who serves his people well. And his loyalty and sacrifices are proven by those who follow him and they give him honor. So these are kind of helpful individual starting definitions of honor and shame. Uh, but the question maybe is, how do they connect? And what does this have to do with the gospel? So I'll address that second question first by saying, uh, I think this matters because the culture we live in impacts how we view the gospel. And in turn, how we view the gospel uh, also impacts how we share it to the people around us. Uh, it's like this example, uh, if you want to put on the screen. If someone were to just give you this, uh, letter, most of you would have no idea what it is. Uh, you might say thank you, you might even be curious and think it looks important and try to uh, translate it. Um, but it would make a huge difference if they gave you this other letter as well. You would immediately understand the context and meaning of the paper. It might be hard to see, but in this example, it's a wedding invitation and you would act upon it congratulating them, RSVPing, getting excited about a wedding celebration. So in the same way, our cultural language in which we share the gospel makes a difference. So that's just a brief answer. I'll explain a bit more. Um, but uh, let's go back to the first question. How do honor and shame connect? Uh, and let's talk. Uh, I'll just talk a little bit about culture. So there's several different ways that the world around us generally views and deals with normal behavior and violations of that behavior. That's kind of a big part of culture. And there's three main simplified views that uh, 
uh, based kind of on what Christian missiologists identify as three responses to sin, guilt, shame, and fear. So I won't explain all these quite yet, uh, but there's guilt, innocence cultures, there's shame, honor cultures, and fear, power cultures. Um, there'll be definitions on the screen, but we'll go through them quickly. So these three categories really simplify kind of broad complexities of cultures. In reality, each individual and group has probably an overlap of the three, as well as more complexity beyond those three. Um, but usually there's a more central one based on the culture around you. And this is kind of a helpful starting point for understanding others with humility, as Steve preached on last week. So in America, we live in primarily a guilt-innocence culture. Uh, this is in contrast to the majority of the world uh, and the most unreached parts of the world that consist of honor-shame cultures. In 2010, uh, only 8.5% of the 4.37 billion uh, people in shame-honor cultures were Christians. So uh, I'll be focusing on kind of those two this morning, uh, how shame honor cultures kind of differ from our own guilt innocence culture. So what are these two views and how are they different? Uh, luckily, I have this handy dandy chart. Um, this uh, next one, yeah, uh, don't worry about getting every detail of this chart and there's probably more. There's not going to be a test or anything today uh, at the end of service, uh, no quizzes. <laughs> but you can somewhat follow along with me. I'll pull out some of the important parts and uh, kind of explaining it. So guilt innocence cultures uh, like America is primarily one are individualistic societies. They're mostly Western uh, where people who break the laws are guilty and seek justice or forgiveness to rectify Iran. And yeah, I can uh, send these charts and share them. Uh, maybe I'll post them on the uh, Facebook page. So. Uh, one example is uh, driving the speed limit uh, in America. So on uh, Green Street on campus, the speed limit, the law, uh, is 25 miles per hour. And my conscience tells me to follow that rule at least within five miles per hour. Uh, if I happen to break that rule and speed, a police officer may pull me over, calling me guilty for the violation I made of speeding. Then the way I respond to try to make up for my guilt is either proving my innocence, perhaps I wasn't actually speeding, uh, there was a trick in the system, or by justifying or making right my guilt. Maybe that's paying a fee or apologizing, going to court. This resolves my guilt, putting me in back and right standing with society. On the other hand, an honor-shame culture feels pretty different, especially to most of us that haven't fully lived in one. Uh, in the abstract, honor-shame cultures are typically collectivistic societies. They're mostly Eastern, and they make up a majority of the world, uh, like I said earlier. In honor-shame cultures, people are shamed and excluded for not fulfilling group expectations and seek to restore their honor before the community. That's uh, decently abstract, and it's hard to even give a one-to-one -one example here uh, because honor-shame cultures are pretty different from ours. In fact, it can be so different culturally that you might break the same speeding law in an honor-shame culture and just not receive any penalty based on how you honor the police officer or because of your honor in that community. In an honor-shame culture, things like addressing your teacher as professor to show honor 
or not asking a question class to avoid shaming yourself or the professor or saying yes to an event you can't actually make to honor a friendship or saving face. Uh, these are kind of all small examples of part of the culture that's ingrained and kind of normal for an honor shame culture. So uh, there's more to it than that and hopefully, but hopefully that's a good helpful start to understanding a different culture. Um, but like I said earlier, the culture we live in impacts how we view the gospel as well. For most of us in America, we primarily talk about and hear the gospel through a guilt innocence lens. Uh, we do talk about the other parts of it, but this is kind of the primary way. Um, for example, here's kind of two common ways we might explain salvation in the gospel, uh, particularly to children or to non-believers. Uh, the Romans road or um, these, um, maybe some of you have seen these or used these with your kids or saw them growing up, the salvation colored beads bracelets. Uh, in fact, I uh, personally remember hearing both of these when I was younger as part of coming to Christ. Um, but uh, both of these are generally conveying the gospel in a guilt innocence lens. Kind of in summary, they both roughly say this, uh, we are all guilty of sin and the consequence of our sin is death. But God didn't leave us there. He sent his son Jesus to die for our sins. He paid the price for our death. And if we confess our sins and have faith in Jesus to forgive us, we are no longer guilty. We are innocent through Jesus and receive salvation and eternal life. So I think that's a decent quick summary of the gospel you might explain to a non-Christian. Uh, so let's put up what I just said. And we can kind of look at all the guilt, innocence terminology. Um, so this is an example that kind of uses specifically the words guilt and innocence and guilty consequence kind of things. And But in general, we do uh, in the Western church tend to focus on this kind of courtroom metaphor of guilt, innocence, uh, justice and judgment, rules and laws, and kind of similar words in our conversations on the gospel our cultural lens tends to be woven throughout how we share the gospel. Now, let me say again, uh, to be clear, this isn't a bad way of sharing the gospel. And it makes a lot of sense that this is the focus in our more guilt, innocence, cultural context and uh, makes sense to our, our needs and uh, what we see as kind of problems in the, our world. And what scripture says about our guilt and innocence and what Jesus's response is important and crucial truth for everyone from any culture. So we can't let go of these parts, this uh, lens of the gospel, uh, but I do want to suggest there's something more. And that is the gospel is more profound for us and much more meaningful for the majority of the world when we are also able to see it and even start with it and have more conversations in the lens and use the language of honor and shame. So let me kind of uh, share with you a brief summary version of the gospel, what you might say the gospel, share the gospel in the lens of honor and shame. So uh, it starts kind of with the intention of God uh, to grant honor. So God granted humans honor by creating them to be honorable with his name, reputation, dominion, and a special face-to-face -face relationship with him. But there was a problem with humanity. And uh, the Bible tells us that, right, the first man and woman disobeyed and dishonored God. They realized they were naked and therefore hid from God, feeling both guilt and shame. 
ever since then, humans continually dishonor and break relationship with God and with each other as we try to create our own honor. The Bible's word for this is sin, uh, being the heart attitude that puts self first and dishonors and breaks relationship with God and people. And from this heart attitude comes the individual thoughts and acts that are sins. Uh, the good news for us is that God didn't leave us there. Uh, he has a final solution. And uh, in families in some parts of the world, the older brother is responsible for the younger brothers and sisters and must seek them if they're lost. In the family of humans uh, as a whole, God the Son, Jesus, became human in order to seek after us and reunite us with God the Father. And in dying on the cross, Jesus took on not just guilt, but also our shame and honored the Father by his perfect obedience. But Jesus didn't remain dead. Uh, the Father honored Jesus' obedience by raising him from death to life. And the word for the special rising to life is resurrection. And so we have a response. When we choose to follow Jesus and have faith in him and what he did for us on the cross, his obedience is credit to us and our sin is forgiven. And also Jesus offers us honor. He removes our shame by offering us full return of inclusion in God's family. We confess and give up our old ways of seeking honor for ourselves and instead accept the true honor that comes from God as full members of the community of God's covenant family. So that's uh, kind of a summary of uh, what the gospel looks like from the lens of honor and shame. Um, and that's good news. Uh, but let's look at an example of where we can see this in scripture with the familiar story of the prodigal son. So uh, I'll read to us from Luke 15, uh, 11 through 32. So these are the uh, words of Jesus as he tells this parable. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. 
And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came and out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, this passage is probably familiar to most of you. And I think it's pretty easy to see the story of the gospel in it. So thinking about the guilt-innocence lens of the gospel, uh, we and reading it in this parable, we often highlight the son's sin, uh, kind of his greed and wasteful living. Uh, even the word often used to describe this parable, uh, the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, highlights by the definition of prodigal, his reckless, wasteful living. Um, and his consequence for this is this death of having nothing, not even food that the pigs are eating. But the good news is when he realizes his, his sins, he confesses his sins to the Father and is forgiven. And this is good news. But there's more to the parable, and I think uh, looking at it with an honor-shame lens can help us see more of the parable and the bigger picture of the gospel. And in fact, those hearing the parable from Jesus in context of the New Testament actually were living in a primarily honor-shame, family-oriented culture. So we get to experience more of um, kind of what they would find shocking of Jesus's message and the good news in it. So first, in an honor-shame lens, um, the sin of this story actually begins with the shame and disloyalty of the son demanding the inheritance money from his father, not just his reckless living. He's essentially calling his father dead to him, and he would in return deserve the ultimate shame uh, in a family context, being disowned for taking uh, this inheritance early and calling his father dead. Add to that the shame of being with pigs and longing to even eat their food. It's not just that he's guilty of wasteful living with his father's money, but his shame is, I am worse than pigs. And he even says himself, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's dealing with this I am worth issue, not just an action issue. Um, and this, in, in essence, is an experience of shame. And I think this makes the father's response even more astounding, right? We see in the story that the father runs to his son, embracing him, and he clothes his, uh, his son with symbols of belonging to the family and throws him a feast. The father restores the son's honor, offering the fullest return and inclusion into the family. And even more shocking than that is the fact, right, that the father himself is taking on that shame and dishonor for the sake of his son. Not only is he taking on the shame by going against what is expected in the community that he should disown his son for uh, causing the shame on the family, but he even physically takes on dishonor 
by running across town towards his beaten up, tattered son. This too makes the older brother's reaction more convicting. Uh, he's angry at not receiving this honor himself and even more at his father who shames himself and gives honor to the shameful younger brother. And uh, he's bringing up essentially these questions of where's my honor? Why do they get honor? Why does he get honor? Why dishonor yourself for someone who deserves dishonor? And this, these are the same questions essentially that the Pharisees are grumbling about at the beginning of uh, this chapter in Luke that uh, Jesus is responding with this parable. In uh, Luke, you can go to the next slide. In uh, Luke, uh, the 15 verses one, right? These Pharisees are grumbling about him receiving sinners and eating with him. Why would he go with those who deserve dishonor? What about our honor as Pharisees? But the good news to that is that ultimately these questions are answered by Jesus as he takes on the shame of earth, sinners and death, even death on the cross in order to restore us to the only real honor of being in God's family. Wow, that's a powerful gospel message. And this idea of honor and shame is also all throughout scripture. Uh, so again, why is this gospel lens so important? And what does it mean for us? Well, uh, first thing is the reality, right, that I said the world is predominantly an honor-shame world. Uh, the region of the world commonly referred to as the 1040 window, uh, including North Africa, the Middle East, and parts of Asia, contains about 64% of the world's population and 90% of unreached people groups, and is predominantly honor-shame. But we're not all going to be missionaries to those parts of the world. But the reality is that the world is right here on this campus. Uh, our university typically has about 11,000 students from 113 countries. And about 9,800 of those students are from North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. Though this number will probably be drastically different this year um, due to the pandemic, there remains many international students that are still on campus, they were never able to make it home, or still will be coming and desire to uh, come to our campus. And in that, we have the opportunity of a lifetime. Most of these international students will never be so close again to the gospel and an opportunity to hear it. And as we are now part of the honorable family of God, uh, what more is there to do but invite others into that family? We can better do this uh, by having a lens that more effectively points to the deep needs of uh, students and people from these regions of the world and uh, in turn to their need for Christ. For many international students, the lens of guilt innocence uh, doesn't really feel like it addresses their needs or uh, it sounds like something important to Americans, but maybe not as important to them. But I think often, but not for everyone, uh, this is obviously a broader aspect, but uh, an honor-shame lens a will often and gives us a better starting point, as well as our actions of honor to them, uh, especially in this season. Furthermore, I think this honor-shame lens is increasingly important for us in America. Our nation is becoming increasingly more shame-focused. 
Uh, this is in big part due to globalization and immigration, uh, as well as a shift in generations and the rise of social media. There's kind of a huge rise in the popularity of the topic of shame. And uh, we can see this. Many of you have uh, maybe heard of Brene Brown, a very popular author and researcher of topics like shame and vulnerability. Uh, her TED talk listening, entitled Listening to Shame has over 14 million views, which is just mind blowing to me. Um, and as well as in the Christian circle, Andy Crouch, a uh, Christian author uh, in a 2015 issue of Christianity Today wrote on the return of shame and how social media is creating a postmodern fame shame culture that is, as he says, leaving us more ashamed than ever and more ready to hear the gospel. Like Andy Crouch, I think the gospel is the answer to this increasing culture of shame. But I think sharing the gospel only in the lens of guilt innocence isn't enough. Um, even when that's not always our intention, we kind of just uh, happen to do that because of um, the way the language we often use uh, when talking about the gospel. But in fact, I would say that uh, the lens of guilt innocence itself uh, only by itself is even pushing away a lot of the younger generations away from the church as they seek for a place of belonging and don't have an answer to their shame that they feel uh, when not kind of meeting the standards of the church and the standards of social media and everything around them. Instead, I think we need what the gospel says about honor in order to reach through uh, to the world around us and especially younger generations. Uh, so let me uh, kind of briefly share and uh, share openly about uh, two examples of this um, with some kind of relevant topics in the world today. So uh, first example, uh, uh, sexual sin. So a big part of struggling uh, and pe for people struggling with sexual sin is often the cycle of hiding and shame. And um, as a campus staff that works with uh, lots of young generations of students, I'm finding this more and more true. Uh, often, especially those coming in as Christians, know the guilt of sexual sin and how it's wrong before the Lord. And they know that God forgives them. But when they continue to fail, uh, shame hits and they don't know how to deal with that. In fact, they feel pushed away and like they don't belong more and more so in the church and seek other places of belonging. I personally experienced this um, very personally when I came to college as a freshman uh, and I was shamefully struggling with uh, masturbation and pornography and uh, keeping it kind of in this private world to myself, feeling like I was struggling with these issues and didn't know what to do. But the good news is I experienced the hope of the God gospel with a college men's fellowship group where things were flipped upside down. All were part of the family, uh, no matter what shame they were feeling and sharing about struggles with each other was an honor. And the community wasn't afraid to step into each other's shame and lift each other up into gospel freedom. And I wouldn't be able to have been transformed in that way without uh, older students that were willing to step into the shame of their own stories and honor me by including me in them and encouraging me to pursue uh, sexual purity with Christ. If the church really talked and acted upon the gospel way of honor to shame, 
how many more people, especially in younger generations, would be experiencing gospel freedom and belonging? And I'm particularly grateful for examples like Pastor Steve in our church, who led Faithful and True, um, the Faithful and True program, and uh, was willing to take on some of the shame of talking about the subject in front of the church, inviting people in, and sharing his own story. And um, I think that's an example of bringing honor to shame in uh, a place like sexual sin. So second example um, is the uh, a big topic right now that I think the church uh, really is trying and wanting to engage in, which is racism in our nation. So racism and addressing it, talking about it is been pretty hard in our nation and especially in our churches. And I think this topic of honor shame is a big part of uh, why it's hard, um, actually. For many people of color, we experience shame for our race, for the color of our skin, for our differences, for our otherness, in our schools, our workplaces, even in our churches. And uh, I believe that only the gospel and Jesus have a real answer for this. Jesus gives true honor to us in being created in God's image and full belonging without shame in the family of God. And in turn, we get to honor God with all that we are, including our ethnicity, and bring honor to him in our world. But the reality is that many people of color don't experience this part of the gospel and in turn, uh, try to get rid of the shame and create honor in our own way. And, and this is a sad reality of the world. Uh, one example of this um, is cancel culture, um, which uh, where even more shame is kind of piled on the one being canceled as a retribution for what I would say is experienced shame. While I believe that cancel culture is not kingdom culture, it misses the point of honor. It is honestly kind of understandable in a world of brokenness where the church and uh, our nation has failed to act out the justice it proclaims often and doesn't show a true answer to shame, uh, being honor. On the other end of things, let me uh, just quickly, because I'm running late on time, be lovingly direct to my white brothers and sisters. I think actually knowing deeper and living out the honor-shame lens of the gospel is better for our Christ-following engagement with racism. I think this is because racism is largely uh, more of a shame issue than we think. And yet it is often treated only as a guilt issue. Uh, some examples of that, um, I don't want to preach a whole nother sermon, but a couple of reasons why. I think often the statement or feeling of being racist, for example, is uh, much more a being statement than a doing statement. It's not just you have done something racist, but you are racist. And that invokes actually the uh, feeling of shame, of I am something wrong. I think too, uh, not doing racism is kind of more and more, especially because of social media, a societal expectation with punishment being exclusion. One example of that even being cancel culture. And um, that's kind of the way a, a shame, honor shame culture even functions. It's based on the societal expectations more so uh, than just laws and rules. I think also a uh, part of this is racism is often not just an individual act of guilt, 
but a system and uh, relates often to our generational history and ancestors. And uh, in looking at it just as guilt, we can tend to um, only think about it in one generation. But shame, uh, we even see this in scripture in some ways, the uh, passed on of sin of generations looks at the uh, history as well. I think also, um, for example, commonly kind of look down responses to the conversation like defensiveness or white fragility, things like that are often what I'd say is guilt innocence responses to what is probably more feelings of shame. I think looking at it in gospel lens too, it helps us understand the sin of racism, uh, that it's uh, participating intentionally or not in individual acts, but also systems that perpetuate this. Um, and we can see this as actually dishonoring God's intention for all people created in his image to flourish and be a part of his family. And uh, rather than sometimes we just look at it as disobeying a specific law to love neighbor, which is also true. So the good news, that those are just parts of it, but I think the good news of the gospel is that uh, it is the answer to racism. And the lens of honor and shame helps us answer that. I think part of that is having a healthy understanding of shame and honor gives us, helps us have healthy shame that points us to sin and repentance, especially of ways where we've participated in cultural systems that create our own honor or promote our own status uh, over others. I think also the good news of God restoring honor and full inclusion in the family of God uh, gives us the good news that Jesus paid for these sins of racism, and yet he has given us still belonging, and especially for my brothers and sisters, belonging in the kingdom of God, despite this brokenness of racism, and uh, the fact that you have gifts to bring to the conversation, as well as the whole kingdom of God. I think, lastly, it also helps us to live like Jesus, who is willing to take on shame, even to the point of the cross and death in order to bring honor to all of us. And what would that look like for us as we engage in these hard issues like racism uh, in our nation? And uh, there's probably more examples of this um, in our world. What does it look like for us to live out honor and shame when we think about the pandemic, when we think about our workplaces? But hopefully that's a helpful start to what it looks like practically in our world. So lastly, application. Um, I think the best place to start is to read and internalize more of honor-shame dynamics in the gospel. And the best place to start for that is right in scripture. Um, read scripture and be looking for these themes and what God says and does about them. Um, some recommended starting places, read Matthew or Romans and see um, areas of God's glory and honor and how he brings redemption to shame. In, in the narratives, in the, his message, and his uh, Jesus's life. Um, some additional books, I'll just, we can show them on the screen real quick. Um, the first best starter is uh, this book called The 3D Gospel by Jason Georges. It's a really short book uh, that starts the uh, topic and gets a little more into it. If you're more academic and kind of nerdy like me and want to go more in depth, uh, his other book called Ministering in Honor, Shame, Cultures is really helpful, as well as this new book by Jackson Wu, Reading Romans with Eastern Eyes, but those are kind of more in depth. Uh, so lastly, two application questions. 
uh, for us to be thinking about this week. First, how do I need to repent of ways in which I try to create my own honor or promote my own status? I think particularly it's helpful to think what cultural systems might in and outside the church might I uh, need to particularly resist during this pandemic quarantine season? And secondly, how can I honor others in a Christ-like way? Am I willing to take on dishonor or shame for the sake of others and bringing them honor? So um, yeah, hopefully those are good questions to reflect on this week and lead us to living out this gospel and knowing this gospel for us and for the world around us um, that also says uh, that God brings us honor to our shame. So let me pray for us just to close. God, thank you for your gospel, your good news, your life, your death and resurrection uh, to us and to the world. And Lord, I pray that you would just help us as a church to bring honor to this campus and the community around us um, to bring your good news to um, our campus and community. I pray these things in your name.